I think it's, uh, you know, looking at the earth and being detached from it gives you more appreciation for it and I think more appreciation for humanity. The Halo Neurostimulation System will help you to push boundaries and to perform at your maximum capacity. Now, I'm often testing new products here at Unbeal Mind, and Halo is the most recent that I've tested. And I felt it absolutely needed to be passed on to the tribe. It's a neurostim device that electrically stimulates the movement centers in your brain. It helps you to move better and faster through neuroplastic adaptation. It's as simple to use as downloading an app and plugging in headphones and then sticking them on your head. Use it for 20 minutes and then you go do your movement or your workout. Now, Halo, the company, has graciously offered to give a discount to Unbeatable Mind listeners. If you go to haloneuro.com and at checkout use the code UNBEATABLEMIND125, which will give you $125 off a Halo Sport model. That's an unbelievable offer. So use UNBEATABLEMIND125 at haloneuro.com, H-A-L-O-N-E-U-R-O.com to get $125 off. Very generous offer that they put together. Hope you check it out. Hoo-yah. Hey, folks. Welcome back. This is Commander Mark Devine with the Unbeatable Mind Podcast. Thanks so much for your time. Wherever you are, driving your car, or sitting at home, I super appreciate it. I know you have a lot vying for your attention and a billion things to do. And I really appreciate you taking the time to listen as we learn how to develop our unbeatable minds and uh, become a little bit more worthy of uh, taking care of our own shit in the world and helping evolve humanity. So that said, I'm super, super stoked for our podcast guest today. What an honor it's going to be to talk to Scott Kelly. Before I give him a more formal introduction, just let me remind you, it always helps if you rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to it or wherever you find it. Super helpful. If you just start with the five stars, that'd be cool. And then also... You know, this whole thing came out of our Unbeatable Mind training that we started to provide to SEAL trainees back in 2007. Many of you know that um, the training, for those who really took it seriously, has led to about a 90% success rate in getting those guys through their training. And so the SEALs are taking notice and we're having meetings with them about how to use this training at BUDS and whatnot. We'll see what comes of that, but it works. Um, if it works for the SEALs and Spec Ops guys, it'll work for you. So check out unbeatablemind.com to learn more about our foundation course, which is a 12-month odyssey. All right, so Scott Kelly is a, and I'm, I'm super stoked. Scott, thanks for being here. I'm going to give you a little introduction, but I really just can't wait to get in and, you know, in talk, uh, you know, into a conversation with you. But I came across your book literally just like a month ago while I was traveling and it stopped me in my tracks because of course I recognized the, the title endurance, you know, is, is certainly the name of a space shuttle. And immediately I said, wow, that's Scott. Endeavor. Oh, and Oh, Endeavor was the, was that the one that you shot? I thought endurance uh, wasn't there one night. There obviously wasn't. No, maybe that was at Disney world or something. <laughs> Probably was. Yeah. So there you go. So, your book, though, is called Endurance. It's about a year that you spent on the space station, and um, I understand it was quite a year. Now you're back, and so you were a former Navy pilot, Navy captain. You were a test pilot, and you got a twin brother who was an astronaut. There's so many cool things about your story, but I want to talk about you, and then uh, I've, I've thumbed through and read parts of, um, of the book Endurance. I can't wait to dig into it 
a little bit deeper, but it looks great. Mm -hmm. So Scott, tell me, let's just start with first, thanks for being here and give us a little sense of like where you came from and what, what was like the, your early part of your life like that, that got you interested in, in this odyssey in the space world. Yeah. So, you know, so I grew up in New Jersey uh, you know, I was born in 1964 and blue collar family, both parents were cops and, you know, I wasn't a great student. Uh, growing up, it was kind of like a, you know, rambunctious kid that couldn't pay attention. I think if I was a kid today, I'd be, you know, diagnosed with ADD or something and yeah. did not do well at, at school ever until I was in college. And I, you know, I went to college just because kind of what everyone did in that part of New Jersey. And right. I was walking across campus one day and happened to go into the bookstore and saw a book on the shelf that uh, just kind of caught my eye. And it was, uh, I think it just the, the, the cover that had a red, white, and blue cover and, a, you know, colors and a, and a really cool title and picked it up and looked at it. And the book was the right stuff mm. by Tom Wolf, mm -hmm. you know, and I, I, I felt like I had things in common with these guys, except for the fact that I was a bad student. And I thought if I could change that, then I could, you know, maybe flying space someday, definitely, you know, not definitely, but perhaps, you know, be a, a pilot in the Navy and a test pilot. And if mm -hmm. I was lucky, maybe, maybe an astronaut. That's pretty amazing. So, a, you know, what were your parents like? Did you, did you have kind of this sense that you could do anything handed down by your parents or did that come from somewhere deep within? You know, my, my mom became a, um, a cop when I was, you know, I don't know, like maybe about 12 years old. And she was one of the first female police officers in, in the state of New Jersey. And, you know, seeing what she went through to achieve that goal, I think made an impression on my brother and I, mm -hmm. although it wasn't, um, you know, it wasn't enough of an impression to make, turn me into a good student, right. but it still, you know, allowed me to see somebody who I, you know, had respect for and, you know, have this goal that she thought she couldn't achieve and then working really, really hard to get, get it, uh, and accomplish it. My dad was, a, was a cop. Uh, also he was kind of like one of these stereotypical, you know, 1970s, uh, you know, police detective guy that you would see on TV mm -hmm. that was, you know, if he wasn't a cop, he, you know, who knows what he would have been doing, but he was, uh, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Yeah, um, <laughs> I often so, thought you know, that about my dad. My dad was literally hand, <laughs> handed a family business, and I was thinking, thank God. I'm not sure what the hell he would have done. Yeah. That's fascinating. Yeah, and I guess they, you know, my parents both worked a lot, and, you know, not only did they give my brother and I a, a long leash, I think when we were teenagers, they kind of cut the leash. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I don't know what kind of influence that had on me. Maybe it had some, but you must have felt really you know, Mark and independent, I were always, right? And, and, you know, needing, to yeah, we were very path. independent. Okay. I think emotionally, uh, we were, we were more, um, you know, emotionally, I guess, you know, we, we acted maybe older than we, than our age. And, you know, my parents always didn't get along. Actually, they didn't get along well at all. And, uh, you know, I think that made my brother and I able to deal with, with, with stress and conflict mm -hmm. at, at a young age. Right. Yeah. So I think my, my upbringing probably had some influence over where I ended up. 
It sounds like it. It sounds like you had a lot of resiliency right out from, you know, right out of the shoot there. Mm -hmm. So the right stuff. I love that book too. I remember reading that and that was about the Mercury program, right? John Glenn and all the Well, it was, yeah, it was, it was about, you know, the early days of like flight tests and, Mm -hmm. you know, supersonic airplanes with, with Chuck Yeager, but also, you know, followed the, the military guys that became the original astronauts and, all, you know, all the way through the Apollo program. Mm-hmm. So when, you know, you went then to college with this idea of thinking that maybe you wanted to do something like that. And uh, that led you into the Navy. Uh, you went to the Navy right after, after college. Yeah. So, you know, I, I, my first year of college, I didn't, wasn't doing well. And like I said, I, I found the book, the right stuff. And then I, I went to a military, you know, military type school and, you know, that had a regimental kind of system that would, you know, give me a little bit of discipline. And, but I was in our Navy RTC. And then mm-hmm. when I uh, graduated, I went right to the, uh, right to flight school mm-hmm. in Pensacola. Where'd you go to college? That- New York Maritime College. Oh yeah. Part of the yeah, I'm well yeah, State University of New York. And sure. it was, it was a, it was a great place for me. You know, at the time, it wasn't hard to get into. It's a lot harder now mm-hmm. um, because it's, a, you know, I think people have done, um, you know, well coming out of there, mm-hmm. including myself. But uh, the discipline, I think, for me was important and allowed me to focus on my education. Right. So you went um, to flight school and did you, um, obviously, you had to focus on one thing at a time. But were you still thinking, hey, I'm going to, you know, were you charting? an application NASA at that stage into your, into your early career path, or were you just like super stoked to be there and focused on learning how to fly? Yeah, I was, you know, I was flying for, you know, flying sake. It wasn't, you know, like an all in all or nothing kind Mm. of thing. I didn't uh, become a pilot because I wanted to be an astronaut, but that was certainly a, you know, like the, you know, the ultimate goal, if it, if it worked out, and if it didn't, I would have been happy, you know, just kind of hanging out in the Navy for, for, uh, you know, 30 years and yeah. being a pilot. And hopefully, you know, I wanted to be the, you know, the CEO of an aircraft carrier, mm-hmm. maybe someday, especially right. with my, my back, my merchant Marine, um, training background, but, uh, worked out for me. Yeah. Was this something, uh, you know, the interest in the astronaut program, something that was talked about or you knew a, a bunch of other pilots who were kind of gunning for that? I mean, I mentioned earlier when we chatted that I knew um, uh, Captain Bill Shepard and Commander Chris Cassie, who were the you know, two SEALs, and there's a new one now, forget his yeah. name, uh, who became astronauts. But it wasn't something in the SEAL community, no. certainly not before Mr. Shepard that we talked about. So, you know, during the space shuttle days, if you were a test pilot in the military, it was, at least it seemed to me that most guys would apply to be astronauts. So it's not something that was really talked about a whole lot. You know, my brother and I didn't talk about it at all. We kind of just applied, you know, independently of, of, of one another. So it was just kind of the thing you did as a test pilot back in those days. I don't know what, how it is now. Maybe, maybe it's still the same. Yeah. Now your brother was a twin. His name is Mark, right? Yeah, he's still a twin. Yeah, imagine that. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny how that works. So, did you guys go to the uh, same school, or did you go to you know different schools, not together? Um, we did not go to the same college. No, he went to the U.S. Merchant Marine Academy, which is yeah. 
okay. you know, a federal school similar to the school I went to, but, you know, it was yeah. a federal school versus right. state. It's amazing how your, your career where did, where did you go? Where did I, you go I went to college? Colgate University in upstate New York. Okay. And then I went into the business world to NY. I went to NYU, uh, got my MBA and and became a CPA and then decided that was all, um, just, just not the right path for me. So I joined the SEALs when I was 25, completely different. Okay. So Uh let's, you know, kind of speed through any like real notable, uh, lessons or challenges from your Navy career, you know, that kind of stand out. Well, you know, I, and I, I kind of write, not not the astronaut part. Yeah. You know, from a piloting airplane perspective, you know, that's really good training uh, for certainly if you're going to be a pilot or commander of the space shuttle or if you're going to, you know, be the person that's, you know, controlling any future space vehicles. But, mm-hmm. you know, I wasn't the greatest pilot at first, you know, and I know that's hard for people to believe. You know, you think, well, that guy landed the space shuttle, but, you know, he's uh, so he's probably been the best um at uh, everything he's ever done. And that's, has, was not my experience. Um, and you know what I found in, in flight school, you know, I did well enough to get to fly jets, mm-hmm. but, uh, you know, once I started flying the F 14 Tomcat, I wasn't the greatest at it. I disqualified the first time I went to the, the, to the aircraft carrier to, in the F 14. And I mm-hmm. disqualified during the day, which is supposed to be the easy part. <laughs> You know, I've almost killed myself on a number of occasions in the in the Tomcat, and those were, you know, good lessons for the amount of um, you know kind of focus and discipline and attention to detail you need when mm-hmm. you're flying in something as complicated as a space shuttle or, or doing a spacewalk. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it was it was good training. How did you know leaping ahead here? But how did flying the space shuttle compare to flying the the F fourteen? In most ways, the um, space shuttle is much more complicated and difficult, uh, with the exception of one thing, and that is landing on the ship at night. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah, that, that's, that's kind of the big auto- equalizer. Autom- automatic, right now, isn't it? I mean, when you're yeah, well, I wouldn't say automatic, but I think it gets it's gotten a lot easier. Right. Um, I mean, I I know I have some friends who are um, carrier, you know, who did what you did and. One of my buddies um, had over a hundred night carrier landings, and he said it was mm-hmm. it's just an intensely challenging thing. But you know, it's m- much more instinct than you know than anything yeah. else. I would say you know half of the time it was kind of terrifying at night. Yeah, but during the daytime it could be fun, but it was not easy. And um, you know, even landing the space shuttle that doesn't have any engines on landing or you know doesn't have any fuel. It's a big glider and has some significant deficiencies flying qualities wise. And you've been in space and you have like one opportunity to do this in your lifetime or maybe two or three, in my case, one still landing on the ship at night is harder, mm-hmm. uh, especially in the airplane I flew. Right. So tell us about your, you know, when you finally decided to apply for the astronaut program, you know, how did that go? Did you get in the first time? You know, all that kind of stuff. And, and what was your early career like? I'm, and, you know, I'm kind of want to build the foundation for talking more yeah. about your year in space. So I, I kind of applied 
because the guy that I shared the office with was applying too. <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Because <laughs> I didn't think I could get in. You know, I didn't have a master's degree. I just didn't feel like I was. Um, no kidding. Interesting. You know, competitive. Yeah, right. at the time. Um, and. And so, how do you, you know, credit? What do you, some, what do you think happened? I mean, what was? I mean, it's congratulations. Well, by the way, I don't want to <laughs> yeah. minimize it, but what? What's going on? You know, on I here? think what's saying that. Uh, you know, when, um, when preparation meets opportunity or right. something, mm-hmm. you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. You know, I think from a, a flight test perspective, I was doing some cool stuff. I, uh, was just a test pilot at PAX river. I think for this class, they were looking for some younger people than they generally look for. Mm-hmm. And I think it probably didn't hurt that the, uh, the CEO of the squadron I was in had some connections at NASA. Cause it seemed like, a lot of my colleagues uh, that eventually got selected, we were all kind of working in the same place at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, Interesting. That helps. So I think, yeah, you know, sometimes, you know, for something that competitive, I think, you know, timing is important. Maybe a little luck if there's such a thing. Right. Uh, yeah. So, so I just kind of applied just, not thinking I would ever get a uh, call back and then got an interview and did well enough during the interview and, you know, did okay with, I guess, the psychological stuff and medical stuff all worked out. Mm -hmm. Got a phone call in May of uh, 1996 to come to Houston a few months later and be an astronaut or start astronaut training at least. Nice. So, what are the stats like? Like, how in that those years, uh, how many people were applying for those limited slots? Yeah, you know, I, I don't know exactly. You, you hear numbers like mm-hmm. in the you know four to five thousand range. Mm. Um, this last class, I think it was like eighteen thousand. Wow! Wow! Yeah, interesting. So, what was yeah. your like? What would the career look like for you? And it's probably it's different for everyone, just like it is in the military. What What did your career look like? Not including, you know, the, well, the year you spent in space. I want to talk about. Yeah. So, you know, I, yeah. So I showed up as a, it was going to be the, my, what I thought my career would be is I'd, you know, do the astronaut training, fly in space a couple of times on the space shuttle as mm-hmm. a pilot. And then a, um, you know, a couple of times as a commander. And that, that would probably be it. Mm-hmm. And each but, of those uh, go arounds is like three or four years, roughly. Between the training and the deployment, you know, a shuttle, the training for a shuttle flight would be about a year, mm-hmm. um, but then you wouldn't like get assigned to another one right away. Right. So, you know, it, it just varies. I, I had people in my class that it took them, um, you know, ten years before they flew in in space. But mm-hmm. you know, I was fortunately lucky somehow and was the first guy, the first American in my class to fly. Mm-hmm in space, which is a pretty big comeback for, you know, a kid at 18 who couldn't do his homework <laughs> and then uh, read a book. Yeah. yeah Cause it was 18 years later that I, I flew in space for the first time Jesus. Uh, after reading the right stuff. So I flew, you know, once as the pilot. And then when I got back from that flight, I was offered a uh, job as the head of NASA's office in star city mm-hmm. in Russia. Yeah. And I did that for about nine months. I read in the book that's where you met uh, Captain Bill Shepard, who was the SEAL team guy that I yeah, met. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the first commander of the space station. 
Rowdy Bill. Yeah. Interesting guy. Yeah, he was pretty hardcore. Yeah, no, no question. <laughs> <laughs> That's cool. Yeah, he was inspiring to all of us. And I think a few other, like I said earlier, a few other SEALs kind of uh, took his lead. Chris Cassidy was one. and his new. Yeah. This podcast is supported by my friends at Ample, a convenient and healthy meal in a bottle. Now, the Ample meal isn't just a protein shake. It's a complete meal, including the fiber, healthy fats, protein, and pre and probiotics. I love this stuff, and I try to have at least one a day. Check them out at amplemeal.com. Now, they know how much I love this product and are offering you, the listener, a 15% discount off your first order if you enter the code UNBEATABLE15. That's 1-5. UNBEATABLE15. I know how hard it is when you're constantly traveling, training, running from here and there. It's nonstop, the world we live in, and having an ample meal on the go makes eating healthy so much easier. It helps me stay on track and eating healthy knowing I'm getting all the nutritional needs met. I just pack the bottle in my bag, and then when I add water, I drink it, I'm done. Piece of cake. So check out amplemeal.com. Use the code unbeatable1515, unbeatable15, to get 50% off your first order. This is the new MRE. Check it out. Who ya? So that's where you first yeah, so, met the Russians and yeah, learned so about that, that. You know, that's when I kind of got exposed to the space station program, is just mm-hmm. being the head of the uh, NASA's office there, which. Oh, it's kind of like being the mayor of the Americans in Star right. City. Right. Not a significant leadership role, but, you know, <laughs> something that gave me some exposure. And then when I got back from that assignment, I was asked to do something I really didn't want to do, and that was fly as a backup uh, for a space station increment when we're on the space station for a long time. You know, the space station crews are called increment crews. and. Mm-hmm the chief of the office wanted me to be the backup and then never fly in space. It was just, so it was kind of a bad deal, but I tried to get out of it. What does that mean um, to be a backup? That means if something goes wrong with, with, I think it was her, uh, then you would have to take her. Yeah. Place. It was Peggy Whitson. Yeah. Peggy, yeah. Yeah. If someone, if she was like medically disqualified or something, I would, I would fly in her place. So which, you had to do um, all the training that she did and kind of mirror her, her work, yeah. so to speak. Interesting. Yeah. And, um, but then, then there was no like real space flight attached to it. So it was right. kind of a crappy deal, but I did it. You know, I was, it must've been something, some kind of give back for you for, for agreeing to do that. Right. Usually oh do. yeah. The, 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 the deal was, you know, if I did that, then my next flight on the space shuttle, I'd fly as the commander of the space shuttle instead of the pilot, mm-hmm. which is not necessarily a great deal because, on one hand it is because it's you know recognizing that you're you've kind of done a good job and but it's like one less space flight on a space shuttle which is considered you know a pretty cool thing to do Mm -hmm. but i made the deal that i would you know be the backup and then i'd go ahead and fly as the uh commander of the space shuttle and then maybe or then after that the commander of the space station Hmm. And during that whole process, the guy who offered me that left. <laughs> oh, but yeah, but but fortunately, his 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 uh, the replacement or the you know the follow-on chief of the astronaut office, Ken Rominger, you know, honored what what we had agreed to. Yeah, and then I flew a couple more times. So, 
is it like being in the navy where like a, like is the commander of a space station like being commanding officer of a seal team kind of thing i mean it's it's both a position as well as a job that you do yeah yeah you know you're the on scene leadership um but you know you're you're still working with a control center so right you know you're not you you know you have some authority you know you have this you have you know the leadership role with the other crew members you know mm-hmm. safety of flight kind of stuff certainly there are certain decisions that are not entirely up to you that the you know the flight director and the program make mm-hmm. which i think is similar to in you know in the military yeah so you know yeah you have, you have to work as with other folks um you know on some of the decisions right so did you get to go to the space station you know on any of these gigs prior to your year in space so my first uh flight i was a pilot of a hubble uh telescope mission so not Okay. Not that time, mm-hmm. um, but when I was the commander of the space shuttle on um, Space Shuttle Endeavor, I it was a space station assembly mission, is what mm-hmm. it was called. Okay. So yeah, so we went to the space station. And what were you assembling up there? Yeah, you know, we brought a small piece of the truss. We brought some uh, this thing called a, a ESP. This uh, can't even remember what that stands for, but it's a like a spare parts holder. Mm-hmm. Was the station occupied when you did it? When you did that mission? Yep. Okay. Yeah, yeah it sure was. There was a crew of three people on board at the time. And uh, we flew in 2007. Most people have no idea the scope of the station now and kind of the, the unbelievable international kind of team that and effort that went to put it together. Can you briefly describe that for listeners? Like, wh- what is the space oh, yeah. station like and, and kind of how did it come to be? It's just extraordinary. And, you know, I, I don't think we, it's kind of like going back to the moon. I don't think we could do it today without a huge, you know, like reorientation. It's amazing. Yeah. So it's 15 countries um, involved. Uh, the European Space Agency is, you know, is a, a partnership of, you know, a lot of European countries, Germany, um, you know, Italy, Spain, the UK you know, many others, uh, Japan, Russia was a big partner and the U S you know, between Russia and the U S we're like the, you know, two largest partners and space stations, is a, space station is in the you know, kind of two halves, the U S side and the Russian side. Hmm. They're a lot different than one another, as you might expect. Right. Thing weighs a million pounds, the size of a football field has some incredible, um, capability to do science. It had pe- has had people on it since Shep, uh, Bill Shepard, like you mentioned, the first commander of the space station since he launched in October of uh, 2000. Mm-hmm. So that's the last time all the people of Earth were on the planet at one time. <laughs> and it, um, wow, that's yeah. interesting to think about, yeah. And generally has a crew of six people okay. on board. That's rising. It's that big, and it only has. Is that because it costs a lot to send people up, or could it handle more pe- more than six? You know, I've been up there with. Uh, let me see. I've been up there with twelve when the when a space shuttle was up there. Mm-hmm. With the space shuttle, it can handle that many because the shuttle has its own, um, you know, life support right. systems that can help out. Um, I see. With uh, the, the the Soyuz, I've uh, been up there with nine people, and that's kind of 
that kind of stretches the uh, capability of life support system a little bit. So, which is mostly the oxygen scrubber, right? I mean, is that the primary system? Uh, mostly, about? it's the big thing is the carbon dioxide scrubber. Or carbon actually. dioxide scrubber. Yeah. That's what I meant. Yeah. 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 You mentioned the the Russian side being really different than the kind of U.S. EU side. And I imagine it being like a rigor taped up and, you know, boxy kind of equipment, you know, just like in the movies. What What is it really like, the Russian side? You know, yeah, you know, their their hardware definitely has a uh, certain look and feel to it that looks a little bit uh, dated, mm-hmm. I, would, I guess. You know, they have to do a lot more with less money, so... Right. That's understandable, and they're, you know, they're often, um, you know, you notice uh, their practicality in the way they they do things. I think they're just forced into it, mm-hmm. and uh, so to me, a lot of the hardware kind of resembles what you would imagine, like some Russian, you know, military equipment from the Soviet days would look like. Mm-hmm. I guess right. um, it's kind of hard to describe, but the you know the from an appearance perspective, you know, the hardware looks a little bit older, a little bit less sophisticated. The lighting in the space station on their side of the space station is a little bit different, you know, different color. The modules are not as large, Mm -hmm. don't have the same, you know, capability to do science. So it's clear that uh, it was built by a different uh, system. Is there there's a lot of back and forth between them, or is it very specifically you know the the Russians are on their side and everyone else is on their side? Well, you know, no, you know, one of the Russian guys actually sleeps on the U.S. side of the space station, and mm-hmm. and you know we we kind of you know come and go freely, um, mm-hmm. but you know when you're working on the U.S. stuff, you tend tend to stay on the U.S. side of the space station, and the Russian guys working on the Russian. You know, during the the day, their activities is mostly in the Russian segment. So, kind of seems like it's two, you know, yeah. maybe uh, organizations uh, sharing the same space. I guess that's interesting. Same building. Yeah. You know, I never asked this, but how did your brother end up in the astronaut program? And you know, did he apply at the same time as you, kind of as pals, or did he come in yeah. later? No, we're in the same class. No kidding. I think it's a. Uh, I don't know. Maybe NASA made some kind of clerical error or something. <laughs> That's pretty unusual. <laughs> maybe I was, I was. I was probably the clerical error. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty funny. Yeah. So, tell us about the your most recent mission because we're already. You know, I could talk to you forever about this stuff, and I feel like we're just getting warmed up. But um, tell us about the most recent mission, the one that you know you ended up retiring out of the out of NASA with, and you wrote the book, and you know now you're going to kind of obviously gearing up for the next phase of your life, um, whatever that might be. And we'll mm-hmm. talk about that, but you know, how did that come about? And then let's talk about some of the major insights and challenges with that mission, which, you know, where you spent a year in space, uh, basically doing a lot of being a, a lab rat for, uh, for medical research. It looks like all amongst other things, of course. Yeah. So, so I, uh, you know, in 2010, I flew that, the flight, the long space flight as the commander of the space station that mm-hmm. I was kind of, you know, offered a, as a payment for being the backup. Mm-hmm. And I got back in Mar- March 2011. And pretty soon after, NASA and the Russian partners started talking about having an American and a Russian spend a year in space. And I wasn't that interested. 
mm-hmm. at first mm-hmm. um, because you, you know how things are you, when you um, you know when you have an experience you kind of the, the bad stuff is generally fresh in your mind and, right you know but as time goes but not that there's a lot of bad stuff about flying in space but six months is a long yeah, time the first tour was six months and, uh, okay. yeah it was 159 days so, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. so I um, at first I wasn't interested in it then I thought you know I wanted to fly again and uh, you know I wanted it to be different and you know it it um, you know I thought being twice as long would would make it different and more challenging. So eventually I, yeah, eventually I kind of warmed up to the idea and, you know, put my name in a hat and we have a lot of qualified people in the astronaut office and uh, capable folks, but there were certain requirements that you needed to uh, be able to fill. You had to be able to be the commander of the space station, which not everyone was considered the right type of person to do that. You had to be have flown uh, a long duration flight previously. You had to be able to do a spacewalk, and then you had to be available, which a lot of people weren't available because they were either in space or training for a flight, or just recently, more mm-hmm. recently than I got back. Mm-hmm. And then there were medical requirements um, that, when you put that filter on everyone in the astronaut office, in the end, there were there were two guys <laughs> left, <laughs> and I was one of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, so in March of 2015, I launched um, from Kazakhstan um, in the you know former Soviet Union in a place called Baikonur mm-hmm. to the space station for to spend a year up there. Your, your Russian cosmonaut friend was named Misha. Is that right? Yeah, Mikhail Kornienko. Okay, my. My Russian brother from another mother. Brother. <laughs> and now he came from a family of cosmonauts, right? His dad or granddad was one I read in your book. No, no, that's uh, Sergei Volkov, okay. who I was up there with, too. He, he was the commander of the Soyuz that Misha and I came back in. Got it. Um, yeah, his dad was a cosmonaut. But okay. um, Misha's dad was, he was in, he worked in the space program. He was a uh, helicopter pilot in the, in the rescue forces that would... Um, you know, the guys that help us, uh, when we land, like the, um, like the UDT guys. <laughs> yeah, kind of, sort maybe more like, um, the, uh, air force, like, um, PJs, the PJs. Right. Yeah. But he was a, the helicopter pilot for them. Okay. But he got killed when Nisha was really young in, uh, in a helicopter crash. So you and you and Misha were, assigned to, together to spend a year up there and to do a bunch of different types of research. So wh- what were the expectations or objectives of NASA for this whole endeavor here? Well, the, um, the, you know, the idea is someday we want to go to Mars. And right. It's a uh, long ways away. And the people that go are going to have to spend a lot of time in, in space. Mm-hmm. Um, on the way there and, uh, on the surface, you know, 200 days to get there, 200 days to get home. You're going to have to spend a year on the surface. And, Mm. you know, there are things that happen to us physically in space and psychologically that we feel like we need to understand better Mm -hmm. to be able to do that someday. Mm -hmm. And the space station is a, is a, 
really the best opportunity we have while we have it right now to understand those physical and psychological effects. So someday in the future, when we have the, you know, the resources and the political will to do it, we'll be able to um, understand and, and protect the crew from this uh, harsh environment. Right. And so I think your, <clears throat> your particular part was also interesting because your brother from the same mother was back down on earth and then he could be studied kind of simultaneously. And since you're twins, right, you guys, you know, share essentially the same DNA. Was that, was that part of the, uh, the interest in the study? Yeah. Well, you know, that was, um, I was actually assigned to the flight and that was kind of an afterthought, but okay. uh, that was a, another study that was actually a bunch of studies mm -hmm. that were conducted as part of this, uh, you know, twins study mm -hmm. between Mark and I. So most, you know, a lot of the stuff was genetic research, some cognitive, psychological. Um, yeah, and that, you know, it was part of the research yeah. program we did. So what were <clears throat> some of the most challenging things that you faced up there during the year, both, you know, technical or, you know, dangerous, also psychological and, you know, just dealing with that, that uh, time away and, that environment. Yeah. So, you know, the, the physical challenges is, you know, you're in microgravity and you have bone loss, uh, muscle loss, you know, our bodies are real smart and they realize when we, when we don't need something and they get rid of it, right. like our bones. Yeah, they try <laughs> so to we, be very efficient. Don't, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you exercise to prevent that. Um, and it, the exercise works well when you do it six days a week. So for exercise, since I'm a SEAL and I understand that probably better than anything else, you, you just basically, I always see guys kind of running on treadmills, but, you know, we like to do weight yeah. training. Is there any way to weight train up in space? Because the, weight, yeah. the weights don't yeah, have any weight. So <laughs> how do you get resistance Yeah, training? so we have this thing that uh, it's great, great device that NASA made, which is, called ARED, the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device, and it uses uh, evacuated cylinders to, uh, you know, mimic lifting real weight. It feels like real weight. Huh. Yeah. I mean, when you're doing bench presses, it feels like you have, you know, some 45-pound plates on a 45-pound right. bar. Um, and it's just pressure, right? Uh, or yes. Yeah, it's just air. It wants evacuated air yeah. cylinders, so it's, a, you know, it kind of pulls on a, on a vacuum. Huh. And then we have the treadmill and a, and a stationary bicycle, those mm -hmm. three things. And you exercise, you know, six or seven days a week. That helps you with the bone loss and muscle yeah. loss. There's also effects on our uh, immune system. Mm -hmm. There's um, effects on our vision structurally and uh, there's some negative effects on the structures of our, our eyes. Mm -hmm. there's, uh, and then, of course, the radiation that we get up there, which is not insignificant. Right. I read um, in something about the fluid shift study. Is that have to do with? Um, did that is that what affected your eyes, or are there other issues that with the shift? Yeah, we're trying to figure out. No, that's really trying to figure out what this issue is that uh, causes astronauts to have swelling of the optic nerves. Things called toroidal folds, which is like the fleshy part that feeds your retina. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, some guys have even had blind spots. But yeah, that fluid chips experiment is part of understanding why we have issues with our eyes. Mm -hmm. 
And there, there's no way to protect against the radiation through the structure. I mean, you just is it coming from the spacewalks or is it, you know, just bomb, just the constant bombarding and mm-hmm. penetration of the structure that's getting you? Yeah, it's, it's cosmic radiation. It's solar radiation. Um, there are uh, certain areas of the space station where you're more protected than others. Uh, our crew quarters has some some uh, radiation protection in the form of these like bricks that are made out of a certain material. Mm-hmm. But you you know the, you can't get away from it completely, and right. we get uh, we get a lot of radiation up there, and which is going to be one of the big challenges when you go to Mars someday. Right. Right. Protecting the crew from radiation when you you don't have the protection of the Earth's magnetic field. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. This podcast is supported by Qualia, brought to you by the Neurohacker Collective. Qualia is a nootropic, that's a brain supplement essentially, that will help you reach your full potential cognitively. Now, I love this product. I use it every day, and when I run out, I feel like I'm you know, maybe missing out. When I take the Qualia, I'm able to think more clearly... And I feel more focused and engaged. You know, it really also helps me when I'm tired and overwhelmed get back into my game. I think Qualia is a breakthrough product and the ingredients are all extremely high quality and they cover a broad spectrum of neurological capacities. So you're going to have to check it out and research it for yourself. But the best way to do that is to actually try it. And Qualia, the team over there, has offered you a 15% off the price of a monthly subscription. That is awesome. I mean, that is, is extremely generous. So if you want to get 15% off and try out Qualia, then go and get a monthly subscription. Just try it out for a couple months using the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R. Don't forget the R. UNBEATABLEMIND15R. And it's sold at their website, neurohacker.com, N-E-U-R-O-H-A-C-K-E-R.com, neurohacker.com. Use the code UNBEATABLEMIND15R to get 15% off that monthly subscription. Check it out. I think this stuff is awesome to support your training in developing an unbeatable mind. Hoo-yah. So what was the scariest moment of that whole year? Like, I mean, there are probably several times where you were, you know, you did something or had something happen where you just weren't sure if you're going to make it out alive. What, what was something, you know, some of those moments for you? You know, the worst things for me have always been associated with what's going on on Earth, not my personal safety. When I was in space for 159 days, my sister-in-law, Congresswoman Gabby Giffords, was shot. Oh, my God. I remember that. Okay. Yeah, and I, I I still had a couple of months of you know being on the space station ahead of me. This time, I I don't know if you'd call it scariest moment, but I would say you know the worst moment was also you know something involving my kid and getting a call. It was an emergency, and I needed to get in touch with her as soon as I could. And then I didn't have um, any. Uh, went down to my crew quarters to call her, and then I didn't have any. Uh, connectivity to you know we lost the line of sight to the satellite for about 20 minutes and mm-hmm. just you know wondering you know how she was and if she was okay well, i know all military folks can appreciate that right because we all do all mm-hmm. do with that yeah. on deployment yeah, it's not yeah. but in this in this case you know you're not getting a uh i think we used to call it what they used to call it in the, in the navy when someone had a family issue 
and then they send you home. Yeah, you get some sort of family, family leave. emergency emergency leave. <laughs> yeah, like a emergency leave. There's no such it thing in space. I yeah. mean, you're you're not coming home. Period. Unless something happens to the space station or physically to you. Right. What were the you know that I'm sure that tests are going to be done for years, but what were as far as you can tell or say the most pronounced you know physiological effects or psychological effects from a year in space on you? You know, I, I don't have any uh, physical, like, symptomatic things. I mm-hmm. I know I still have some, just, like, structural changes in my eyes, but that doesn't affect my ability to see. Mm-hmm. The, the big thing, I think, is the radiation and whether, you know, that'll cause any long-term problems. Hopefully not. I mean, I kind of know what my increased chances of, you know, cancer are as a result. Mm-hmm. And it's not, it's not that much, you know, it's not like... Uh, you know, it's a few percent mm-hmm. from what I would normally, you know, a few percent more risk of what I would normally have. Mm-hmm. But, you know, it's, you know, 1% higher risk is still something. If, uh, if you're in that 1% that kills you, you don't want to be in that, uh, yeah. you know, that one percentile, I guess. I have a note here from Allison in my show prep that, you know, they did a study of your telomeres, which are, you know, supposed to be associated with longevity. And they just assume that from stress and the, all the other things that you're talking mm-hmm. about, that they would have a deleterious effect. But that wasn't so. What do you think about that? Yeah. You know, mine got better. Is it possible that space travel can actually improve our longevity? <laughs> maybe maybe because of the lightness and <laughs> anti-gravity. Yeah, who knows? Maybe it was all the exercise and clean living. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That's you didn't touch, touch alcohol for 12 months. Telomeres yeah. got bigger. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. Maybe they went back to normal, though. So, But, you know, it's interesting research when you expect one thing to happen and the exact opposite happens. Yeah, no doubt. Um, but I don't, I don't think it'll be a fountain of youth. Yeah. No, I doubt that, too. Fascinating. Let me, um, you know, we got to get going here and I super appreciate your time, but we've already been on for like 50 minutes and, um, mm-hmm. most people check out at like 35 and I'm sure they're not, they're listening and I want to hear, they want to hear some of the, you know, lessons learned, you know, more about life because and people mind, you know, we, we really feed on the earth trying to, you know, make our lives better and help people as you're doing, um, you know, live more meaningfully and also make an impact. But what were some of the some of the kind of life lessons you learned from your year in space that are going to kind of change or have changed how you think about yourself and earth and, you know, what your future mm. holds. Yeah. You know, I've, one thing I've learned working at NASA, when, when I went to NASA, I was a Lieutenant in the Navy in 1996. And mm. I, I think it was a different Navy than we have today. You know, it's more diverse. Right. Um, you know, we didn't, I didn't have, you know, there were no women in my squadron, uh, you know, very few minorities. And, you know, coming to NASA, which is a is kind of a civilian government organization, there was more diversity. But over time, it, you know, it even got more so. And then working with an international partnership of people with you know, different backgrounds and different cultures, you, you know, you realize the strength that, uh, you know, that kind of uh, diverse, experience space brings to an organization hmm. you know, I learned that you know diversity makes us stronger mm-hmm. I learned um, you know to 
appreciate the uh, the environment uh, that we have. It looks very fragile from space. Mm-hmm. You can see how thin the atmosphere is. You can see you know certain parts of the Earth that are polluted. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and I think also you know being off the planet and seeing how beautiful it is, and uh, you know, incredible, incredibly lucky we are to have this place. Yes. But when you hear the news in the evening, you think it's, uh, you know, it's mostly bad news. And especially today, I mean, you know, today's climate, when you watch the news, it's like, yeah. you know, all, all we do is argue with one another and we don't accomplish much of anything, at least, uh, you know, on a political level. So right. I think it's, uh, you know, looking at the earth and being detached from it gives you more appreciation for it. And I think more appreciation for humanity. Yeah. Yeah, I love that. You know, and I, I think I've heard other astronauts kind of in different words mm-hmm. say something similar, that you get this awesome perspective yeah. for the whole planet and cosmos and, you know, how all human beings are required to, you know, act together and not independently to, to solve mm-hmm. some of these problems. Yeah. That's neat. What's next for you, Scott? I mean, gosh, you've accomplished so much and you've had, like, experiences that very few individuals get to experience and i know all these as a seal when i got off active duty and then i left the seals altogether i felt kind of like oh shit you know life is kind of over as i know it which it was because i don't get to contribute at that level yeah. anymore so what's next for you how can you make yeah a difference? right <laughs> it's a weird yeah. feeling you know? it is a very weird feeling you know you know i uh, you know i left when I became an astronaut, I remember a few people saying, you know, you're going to leave this job someday and you need make sure you need to leave at the right time. And, mm. you know, it was the right time for me. And I have a lot of, op- I had a lot of opportunity. I still have a lot of opportunity, but mm-hmm. I'm sure like you experience, there's nothing like being, you know, part of a, a, a team that's doing something incredibly challenging and incredibly important and, and also risky right. that makes you, um, you know, feel like you're, you know, uh, you know, making a contribution, mm-hmm. uh, an important contribution. And, uh, and I don't have that like technical, uh, challenging work that has some real world, you know, physical consequences to it anymore. And it, you know, it takes a while to get used to that. And I, 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 to be honest with you, I don't think I've gotten used to it yet. I've been right. out of NASA now it's about a year and a half and, mm-hmm. uh, uh, been incredibly busy, uh, and I look forward to January and having some a uh, little bit more time to consider, you know, what that next chapter is. I have no idea. Um, what about civilian, but, uh, you know, civilian space flight, or you know, looking at one of those uh, billionaires organizations who are trying to put people on Mars? Is that something yeah. that would interest you? I would. I'll tell you what. I I would absolutely be open to the idea. I would love to be involved. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm not looking for a, you know, a full-time job at one of the, those, those companies, but absolutely. If, uh, you know, if Elon or, or Jeff Bezos are, are, are mm-hmm. listening, I'd be right. more than happy to be in, serve <laughs> in some kind of advisory role. Yeah. I mean, they're doing some pretty, pretty incredible and groundbreaking work. And I know there's a lot of back and forth with NASA and all that, but uh, it's cool to see from my perspective, you know, the civilians getting into the game and kind of like almost challenging NASA to up their game, which has been, you yeah. know, kind of bogged down a little bit in bureaucracy and has financial issues. And yeah. 
Well, you know, with with uh, with SpaceX and Boeing, I mean, NASA's in like an official partnership with them, right? For right. Providing uh, access to low Earth orbit, um, but all those companies are are uh, very exciting, and I think, you know, I think we're on the cusp of like a uh, you know kind of like a revolution in in access to to space for more people, mm-hmm. and it's uh, you know it's an exciting time. Yeah, no doubt. Well, thank you very much for your service. Uh, you know, it's, it's yeah, thank pretty, you. pretty incredible what you've done, and I, you know, certainly appreciate it. And thank you, brother, and everyone yeah. else, else in NASA doing their work. It's really uh, very inspirational. And you know, um, crossing my fingers that our government will keep the pressure on and, and the focus in the right place. And if not, you know, yeah. we know the civilians, Elon and crew, will do it for for them. <laughs> and your book, yeah, yeah, hopefully, right? Yeah, and your book uh, is excellent. It's called Endurance. Everyone should go check out. Scott's new book, Endurance. Uh, is there any going to be? Uh, is there going to be any follow-on uh, work to that, or uh, what, what's happening with this? Are you on book tours, or you know, how can people support you? Yeah, well, actually, the book tour is almost over. Is uh, I have a few more, few more stops, but been going at it since uh, the book was published, October seventeenth. Okay. Actually, Sony bought the rights to turn it into a movie. Oh no That's kidding! It. We'll see what happens. Terrific. Yeah. Good luck with that. Yeah, that, that sounds great. Yeah. Okay, so um, thanks again. And, of course, reach out if we All can right. help, help out in any way. And uh, All right. Godspeed. Thanks very much, All right. Mark. Thanks. All right. Take, Take care. care. Bye-bye. All right. What an incredible guy. That was former astronaut Scott Kelly, former Navy captain, uh, fighter pilot, test pilot, shuttle pilot, shuttle commander, space station commander. What an incredible journey. And... Um, Gosh, he's 53 years old, if I'm not uh, mistaken. He was born a year after me, 1964, so he's just getting warmed up. Look forward to a lot more from Scott, and um, it was super cool for all of us to uh, to get to know him a little bit. So check out his book, Endurance, uh, at Amazon or anywhere else. It's fantastic, and uh, I'm plowing my way through it right now. And it really is a fascinating read. All right, everybody, that's it for the Unbeatable Mind podcast this time. Um, Enjoy your holiday seasons if you're listening to this. Uh, I'm recording it literally a week before our annual summit in uh, December 1st through 3rd of 2017. Some of you will be coming at this a lot later because this is evergreen, but there you have it. That's my date timestamp. And I'm gearing up for our year-end planning and, you know, just getting ready for the holidays. So I wish you all an incredible holiday season. And a fantastic end of 2017. And we're looking forward to 2018 being just uh, an extraordinary breakthrough year for all of us. Lots of cool things going on. And um, I think we're in for some interesting changes in 18. So not just, I mean, in our business, but I mean, in the world. So strap on and pay attention. Hoo-yah. Divine out. Back, the pride of the fleet, the bright swinging frogmen, 